This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. That's not exactly how it worked out. When I got up to the bench, now not so much Devil's Club, a lot more Willow and Alder, but it was literally like tunnels through the bush. There's bear scat, there's bear tracks, there's just sign of bear, and it, it just it looked like where a bear would make its way through the bush. And so I was literally having to crawl at times to get through the bush following these trails. I had no idea what was just beyond where I could see through the bush, what was around the next corner. This is the second episode about the Big Susitna. I do recommend listening to part one, No Boat, No Paddle on the Big Susitna River, before listening to this episode. In the first episode, we heard about the characters. There is Buckwheat. Most of my friends know me as Buckwheat. And Mikey. My friends call me Mikey K. And Jerry. My name's Jerry Jakes. And Bill. I'm Bill Quich. People call me Bill Q. And Connie. My name is Connie Hubbard. It is September of 1995 on the Big Susitna River, often referred to as the Big Sioux. In Alaska, Buckwheat, Mikey, and Bill are on the Big Sioux in kayaks that flows over 20,000 CFS. This is glacier flow accentuated by powerful rain. They were flown into the put-in by Jerry, and Connie took the train and has a camp set up at the takeout. This is intended to be a day run down Devil's Canyon of the Big Sioux, a run of about 25 miles. The crew portages the first rapid, Devil's Creek Rapid, runs a second rapid called the Nozzle, and is planning to eddy out after the Nozzle and portage the right side around the massive rapid of Hotel Rock, that is a gigantic river-wide hole in hydraulic at these levels. Bill goes first, Mikey follows, and then Buckwheat. Bill gets pushed to the left and catches the river left eddy above Hotel Rock. Mikey gets to the river right and catches the eddy. Buckwheat gets caught in the massive whirlpool and goes around and around, getting knocked down and rolling up. Eventually, he has to wet exit out of his kayak and is now swimming in the river. He is able to grab his boat and paddle and attempts to swim into the eddy on the river left with his gear. He doesn't see anyone and is not able to swim with the boat. He lets his kayak go downriver. He tries swimming with his paddle and yet this is not working and so he lets his paddle go. And now he swims with all his power for the left eddy. And he catches it and is able to grab a bit of the canyon wall and even stand on a rock with his feet still underwater. And the river surges and knocks him into the river within seconds and he is swimming again but still in the eddy. He slides through a surging rock pour over and finds himself on a gravel bar solid ground. He is safe, alive, no boat, no paddle. Shortly after, Bill finds Buckwheat on the river left and then after a frightening cross river ferry, Mikey joins Bill and Buckwheat on the left. They are all alive and okay. They are recognizing that they will be sleeping in the canyon that night without proper gear. They portage down the river left side of the massive Hotel Rock Rapid and find a camp, have a smoky fire, an uncomfortable and cold night with not much sleep. In the morning, Bill and Mikey head downriver in their kayaks, and Buckwheat is left alone in the canyon with the task of getting downstream five miles to the abandoned airstrip. We begin with Mikey and Bill telling us about their paddle out of Devil's Canyon. I'm assuming you got downriver with, with uh, I don't want to say with ease. You got downriver, you made it, is that right? Yeah, it was pretty exciting though, because, uh, what, yeah, what is that, screaming left-hand turn, is that what it's called? Yes. We got there and it was, there was fog and it was just, 
spooky and mysterious and like religious almost going down through there. Then we went down to Devil's Gorge and Mikey and I got out on the right to scout. And when I got out on the right to scout, I realized I just wasn't breathing. It's like I was just so tense from the whole thing that I consciously needed to breathe. And I also realized the rock we got out to scout on is the same rock that everybody who's ever been down there has stopped on to scout. And all of a sudden it was like a little bit of strength there because I was like, yeah, like everybody's been here. I, I have a, a tie to other people who have run this rapid. Mikey ran that one first. And I remember I just started, my arms started cramping up a little bit on that rapid trying to, cause you have to run to the left as I recall and avoid some big holes on the right. And it was just, it was like just a big muscle move. And after that, it was just time to paddle and head down to where Connie was. And we made it on down through and then we were past all the major obstacles. And I was so relieved and so happy. And then I was like, oh, Buckwheat's still up there. Okay, we got to go. That's, that's enough celebrating. Let's, let's, we, we gotta, we're on a mission. So you make it You make it to the Connie camp? Yeah, and she's there. We made it down to Connie and explained to her what happened. And we had a big sense of relief there because at least we'd accomplished that part of the trip. And uh, now it was time to flag down the train because that's the, the custom on the railroad there is you can flag down the train and get picked up. But that train was, was broken down, so we had to flag down the Princess. The train, tourist train. The tourist train. And <laughs> we made us stay in the baggage car. We tried to get up to the bar car, but no. Yeah, I wanted to go to the bar car and get a drink at that point. And the, <laughs> they had like a bouncer in the bar car. And he's like, you guys aren't coming in. Yeah, dry suits and stinking like neoprene. <laughs> They're going to keep you in the, in the baggage car. <laughs> Not mixing with the princess guest. No. no. Dirt bags, stay put. Okay. Yeah. The River Radius is pleased to welcome a new advertising sponsor to the podcast, Nissan Cars and Trucks and the local Denver area Nissan dealers. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today, we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed, or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes... Even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. At this point, we have two parallel stories happening. Buckwheat is down at the river alone and trying to hike five miles downriver, and Mikey and Bill have paddled out and are in Talkeetna working to organize a rescue. We just heard from Bill and Mikey about their paddle out and their arrival in Talkeetna. Now we go back to the morning with Buckwheat and we hear about his day of hiking. Alone. 
All right. Well, so there was a there was, you were starting to talk about the map. You hike up. Yeah, I remember knowing that there was a bench, like you know, uh, a few hundred vertical feet up the canyon. There was kind of a bench up there, and it's like, well, maybe the bench goes. Maybe it tracks all the way down to Devil's Gorge and the old landing strip, and yeah, might be a clear path. As I started to climb up this very steep slope, um, like very unstable terrain, loose footing, uh, very thick bush country, you know, willows, alders, and devil's club. Like not one you want to grab onto for a handhold when you're climbing up, uh, you know, loose slope and you're sliding down and grabbing for whatever you could grab to get up the slope in any case um i pressed on because as i said um we had a map and the map uh showed that there was kind of a bench above this first steep slope and i'm thinking well if i get up there uh, maybe i can get a visual on where i need to go i can look downstream somewhat somehow i can get to a high enough point and um get some orientation here on where I'm trying to get to. That's not exactly how it worked out. When I got up to the bench and I could tell that I had gotten to the, you know, top of the steeper slope and I'm on this bench now, um, not so much devil's club, a lot more willow and alder, but it was literally like, uh, tunnels through the bush. And there was no question in my mind that these were bear paths. Um, there's bear scat, there's bear tracks, there's just sign of bear. And it, it just, it looked like where a, a bear would make its way through the bush. And so I was literally having to crawl at times to get through the bush following these game trails, bear trails. And, um, I almost turned around at that point because, um, I had no idea what was just beyond where I could see through the bush, what was around the next corner. Um, the entire time I, in, in my own mind, um, it's kind of funny. I, I thought of, uh, have you ever heard of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe? Yeah. I felt like I was passing through the wardrobe, you know, into this land of unknown. And, um, I had I had been in that play in the ninth grade. It came to mind why I don't know, but um, I think it's all a part of that um, encountering the unexpected in the wilderness and where your mind goes in these situations. You and know, it, in some ways, it's not really metaphorical. It's very realistic because you 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 lived in another place, a house. You had your van. You had electricity, communications, and you go out here into the tunnels with the bear, which is a real thing. And you're it's their home in their home, their home, the wild yeah. home, not my home. Yeah. Did not feel at home. Right. Yeah. You, you just felt the presence of the bears in that area for sure. Like it was their country. No question. And I got up on that bench and I got into a little bit more of an open area. And so I gained a little more elevation and then I came to the first side canyon of Devil's Canyon. And uh, 
once I hit the side canyon, I'm like, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to stay on this bench. I've got to go up above this side canyon and get up on a higher ridge to make my way down river. So I start following that canyon up and I came to the side canyon of the side canyon, which was kind of this, uh, rock, uh, sort of box canyon little feature. And, um, I'm like, oh man, now I've got to go around that canyon. And so I, the, the weather had lifted enough. I was starting to get a visual of the terrain and what was going on. And I could kind of look downstream a bit and I'm like, okay, I see what I need to do here. I need to actually go quite a ways up, gain the high ridge, make my way down river, and then figure out what ridge, what route is going to take me down to that airstrip and that was going to be difficult just trying to find my way to that place but it wasn't going to happen that day and it was just there just wasn't enough time and as mikey had said it's september it's getting dark and so um at that point i decide well i can make it part way and camp and then try to make it the rest of the way. But if anyone comes looking for me, they're not going to have any idea where to look. I'll just be out here and they won't be able to find me if they're looking for me. So I'm going back to the other camp. I'm going back down to the river. I'm going back to the other camp to the place where someone last saw me. So you're going, you're going back to the place where you all had the campfire. You were with your friends. That's right. Back, back, back. The last place that they saw me. Okay. Okay. So I decided I'm going back there, which, uh, I think was the right decision. But the craziest thing that happened at that moment, as I turned around and decided to go back to that camp, I turn around and laying there in the tundra is a green rain fly from a tent. It's like laying there. Not yours. No. But you're going to use it? I grabbed it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a real godsend. Wow. And um, so huh. here, here this, you know, tent fly is just laying in the tundra. I'm like, well, that should help. And um, so I gather up the rain fly and head back down to the river, back to the camp, and set myself up with a... Uh, relatively comfortable camp. I basically had my, my dry suit as a ground cloth that I could lay on. I had the emergency blanket, um, to wrap up in. And I had, uh, I think it was a throw bag. I had a line that I could string and drape the tent fly over that. So I had shelter and it rained all night. Um, but I was dry and wrapped up in the blanket and, and you still had food. I still had some food. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thankfully those guys gave me some supplies and yeah. And you're just drinking the water out of the creeks and the rivers. The creek was there. Yeah, the and creek, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Better than the river. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I went back and set up my camp and built a fire and, um, that, that night yeah, there was uh, a lot of time for introspection and things that I may have done differently. Was it the right decision for me to even uh, attempt to 
paddle the river at that water level. And yet we were, we were all there in Talkeetna. The, the plan was put together and um, against all odds, weather, Jerry's availability, everything else. We had this window, we flew in. We were fairly committed and, and we went for it. And, and we did discuss the fact that given the water level and all, we were all fine, like with portaging around the first big rapid at Devil Creek. And yet, yeah, I, I had plenty of time to sit there in that camp that night and, and question my decision-making on going in there in the first place. And then as well, while I was in that camp, I saw the plane flying downstream over the old airstrip. And we had made the plan to to have a, a you know a gear drop that evening for me in that camp with you know tent sleeping bag food supplies that I might need um, not only to spend a couple nights if I needed to but to also kind of clear the airstrip so they dropped the tools and I I saw the plane and it was late in the evening and I knew it was beyond the hour that any pilot would really want to be flying. And so it, it made me give full consideration to the, the circumstances and the chances people were taking and the commitment that other people were making to try to help me and to try to rescue me and get me out of there and do what they can, can to help out my situation. And obviously I just felt bad about that whoever the pilot was flying downstream at night. My only thought was, I, I hope they have a place to go that's not very far away. I hope they're not flying back to Talkeetna. And I, I assumed it was Jerry, but um, yeah, I didn't know that. Jerry, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what was going on there. Yeah, well, I had dropped you guys off and thought everything was going fine. Went about my basic flying duties until the rescue crew showed up at my hangar and said, Buckwheat's stuck in the canyon. He swam at uh, the nozzle, lost his boat, and he's going to make his way down to the, the airstrip you pointed out, or the old overgrown abandoned airstrip. So everybody hustled together that was there. I had a, a boatman by the name of Jim Hendricks, a very experienced uh, a whitewater rafting boatman, and we basically threw a bunch of supplies into a dry bag, a care package, airdrop out of the airplane for buckwheat at the strip. I think we also put a, a small handsaw and a machete and a Pulaski axe and tied a lot of survey tape, and it was getting late. So we flew up the canyon, uh, couldn't see buckwheat at the uh, the airstrip anywhere. And I, my hope was that, well, he was... Uh, hiking there and would watch us do this airdrop of emergency gear. So after maybe three circles or so, not finding him, we went uh, over the airstrip about 10 feet above the ground, uh, maybe, maybe more like 25 feet, threw the, uh, the dry bag out, circled up a little higher, and threw the rest of it out, hopefully that he could see this long ribbons of survey tape that was the tail for it and find it. And at that point, there was no way to make it back to Talkeetna in a, in a float plane and land. So we went ahead. I had a, an old cabin that my grandfather had built in the uh, 30s 
oh, about 15, 20 miles from there that we, we went and landed there and spent the night. Mikey and Bill and Connie get back to Talkeetna and inform the pilot Jerry that Buckwheat is stuck in the canyon. Jerry and Jimmy Hendricks rally up a dry bag of sleeping gear and hand tools for Buckwheat so he can clear the airstrip. But Buckwheat is not at the airstrip as he returned to the last place Mikey and Bill saw him, their original camp. Mikey explains his first contact with Jerry when they get back to Talkeetna. We didn't really get back to Talkeetna in time because the, the train that we were supposed to take mm-hmm. uh, was delayed because of a big rock slide. And then we had to get on the tourist train. And so when we got back to Talkeetna, it was too late to really get anything going. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do remember calling uh, Buckwheat's wife, Louise, uh, to tell her how the trip went. And that was one of the hardest phone calls I've ever made. But um, so, yeah, we you know, help get together that, uh, care package. Um, and then, you know, Jerry took off with Jimmy and, uh, they were gone and it got dark and they didn't come back. The next morning, Mikey and Bill and Connie start making calls to find an aircraft to pluck buckwheat out of the Canyon. Jerry is still at his grandfather's cabin and out of radio contact. Mikey explains his calls. I got on the horn or got on the phone. You know, this is pre cell phones, of course. So you know, had to go use the phone at the Hudson, you know, their, their air uh, office there on the, on the airstrip there in Talkeetna. And they were real kind and let us, you know, use their phone and uh, kind of base out of their, out of their place there. But uh, so, yeah, trying to make some calls. I called the main man there at Nova, Chuck, and he knew a pilot uh, in Anchorage that had a helicopter. And so we were thinking, well, the only way to really get in there with an aircraft would be a helicopter. And so, uh, I got on uh, the phone and I called this friend of Chuck's and talked to him, and he, but he was busy doing some other things and he wasn't going to be free till later in the afternoon. And so we were just sort of uh, waiting at that point to see uh, when, when he was ready to leave Anchorage with his helicopter and then fly up. And then uh, we were going to uh, go and try to pluck Buckwheat out of the wilderness there somewhere. Buckwheat made it through a second night out, his first night alone. He is planning to again hike down to the airstrip, and as he's packing up, he hears a plane. The second plane he has heard now. One the evening before, and this one in the morning. Okay, so you camp at the original place, and yeah. then you wake up in the morning, or you maybe just... I'm like, okay, yeah. you know, no. I'm going to try this again. But the, the rain had moved back in, the weather had moved back in, the clouds were kind of on the deck, and I'm like, well, I'm not going anywhere until I can see where I'm going. And so I was kind of waiting it out. And, um, I'm guessing it was, uh, you know, like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning or so. And the clouds are starting to lift and I'm like, okay, I think I still have time to strike out on this mission and try to get down to that old airstrip. And so I start kind of packing things up and I hear a plane plane kind of buzzes over and I go out to the shoreline, try to make myself apparent as much as possible and visible from the air. Both of you guys were in the plane with Jay Hudson, right? This was uh, Jay Hudson now, another pilot out of Talkeetna. And um, I don't really know all the backstory on that and um, how that all came together, but I'm pretty sure uh, Bill and Mikey, you guys were both in that plane, right? Yeah. Yeah, we we got the ride with Jay Hudson right. uh, to to locate you, Buckwheat, out there. Because I think we kind of had to do that first, right? To uh, find out where you are before we could de- determine what 
type of, of rescue we would uh, initiate. It was after we we found you out there on the you know the, the plane ride with Jay Hudson that uh, uh, we decided that yeah a helicopter was going to be the way to go. Jay had a radio, a handheld radio, and he wrapped it up in a cardboard box with padding. And when we flew out there, uh, like I say, looking for buckwheat, I realized how hopeless that could be if they're not someplace obvious. And I was so glad that buckwheat had gone back to the camp. Yeah. So did you guys look for me at the other sort of overgrown, abandoned airstrip? Did you look for me there first? It was, yeah, it was, it was overgrown and hopeless over there. Mm-hmm. And so you came back to the place you had last seen me. Right. So we circled around and flew through and threw that box out the window down at Buckwheat. <laughs> like I said, I was kind of packing up and I, here comes this airplane. I'm like, oh, okay. They're looking for me. I'm going to make myself as obvious as I can. Went out to the shore see him circling and then I see him kind of coming down in and I see this box or whatever it is come flying out of the airplane and hits the shoreline and kind of bounces down the shoreline and I'm like scrambling. It almost goes in the river and I jump on the thing and get the radio and that's it. It's in the box all packaged up and uh, it survived the airdrop and get on the radio and it's Jay Hudson the pilot and um he's like do not go anywhere don't try to hike out there's bears everywhere and if you get lost we'll never find you if you get hurt we'll never find you um yeah just stay where you are and we'll figure out how to get you out of here he said when you say he says this he you're talking to on him. the radio on the radio so come on, on the radio this is your first conversation with people yeah day or two yeah yeah. Okay. And um, so anyway, Jay's like, just stay put. And um, if we can't get a helicopter in later today, then we'll come in with another, um, you know, supply. And we'll we'll drop you another bag so that you can wait as long as you have to for a helicopter or what, whatever the method is to get you out of here. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from. That is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022, and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick-looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features, and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver-area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting about this conversation, about this this whole story, is there's certain things that, that have happened and that are being talked about that are the most basic things I feel like 
we get taught when we start to venture into the wilderness, into the woods, into the wherever outside the front country, go back to where you came from. Don't get lost. Don't make more victims. You know, your buddies don't paddle down after you. Well, don't make more victims. You know, that's a good thing too. come prepared, the fire kit, the snacks, even the, the crazy little foil blanket. I mean, how critical is that tool? There's a lot of lessons here. <laughs> I'm taking a lot of notes on what I don't carry that I need to come back to carrying. The emergency blanket was key. Yeah, really? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It kept me comfortable that, that night, you know. I mean, of course, the tent fly was remarkably uh, dry. Yeah. Yeah. I think a key element to all of this is that when Jerry and Jimmy Hendricks flew in to drop me that um, cache of supplies, they were not able to fly back to Talkeetna. They had to go to the cabin and spend the night. Yeah. So now they're not talking to Mikey and Bill, or you know, right. like Jerry and Jimmy don't know what's going on otherwise. Yeah, there's two kind of they just They just know that they didn't find me out there. And as far as they know, I'm still stuck out there. They, they, no one knows anything about the tent fly. And Jerry doesn't really know what I, he just knows I'm stranded out there another night. It's raining again. And, um, yeah, Jerry, maybe you take it from there on your thoughts of what my situation is in your mind at that point. Well, all I know is that I'd gotten stuck at the lake I'd landed on for the night from fog. It took a long time for that fog to blow off. In fact, the lake is called fog Lake. I think it was probably midday. I finally got airborne. And I was heading your direction again just to see what was going on. And Jay Hudson hit me on the radio and said they'd just dropped you a radio but no other gear and that you weren't, hadn't made it to the camp. You were stuck way upriver, um, but that they had a helicopter that was going to be coming in that, that afternoon. Pick you up. Uh, so I kind of relaxed. I went back down to Talkeetna, was bringing out a raft trip to drop off, and had just landed to drop the raft trip stuff off, got in the air and the weather's coming in. And this is September, it's cold. And I'm looking at a wall of weather blowing down river that's gonna probably keep us all grounded for the next several days. Uh, and the forecast said the same thing. And then I got an, uh, another radio call from, uh, it was either Jay Hudson or his dad, Cliff Hudson, that the helicopters uh, are not available the state trooper helicopter that was going to come do the rescue had actually crashed doing another rescue. And their other helicopter was trying to take care of, of the rescue of, of their own helicopter and the people that were needing to be rescued. So there was, they were at least a day and a half out. And I figured you'd already spent two or three nights out there. I didn't know you had a fire. I figured you were hypothermic and had been beat up in the Canyon. Cause I, I know that feeling. So I, I relanded where I dropped the raft trip, grabbed a wetsuit, put on a wetsuit. I, I just had a feeling that I might be able to pull off a landing in the canyon, depending on where you were. So I put on the wetsuit. I took a couple of uh, MREs, which have food matches and, and stuff in them, stuffed them inside my wetsuit and took off alone, headed to the canyon. When I flew overhead, I knew you had a radio, but I assumed it was an aviation radio, not a CB radio. I eventually found you. 
you weren't moving. I saw no fire and you were just kind of standing there. Uh, I didn't realize you were trying to talk to me on a CB radio. Uh, and so we, we weren't communicating. And I thought to myself, gosh, he's, he's hypothermic. He's not moving. He's lethargic. He won't make it another night. And this could be two or three nights that he's stuck there. And so I looked at the canyon and thought, well, I know those waves are huge in there, but maybe I can pull off a landing and get in and get him out. So I, uh, I made a low approach, started skipping across the top of these waves with the floats, just flipping the top of the waves and realizing these, these waves were big, but I didn't feel like I had any other choice. And I must admit, I thought about getting out of there because I knew that my insurance company would not uh, cover me for this, the skunk, they would call it. And yeah. I, was, I figured 50-50 whether I was going to lose my airplane and wind up swimming in the canyon myself again, which I didn't want to do. But then I just remembered how it felt when the helicopter had rescued me. And I felt like, well, I owe it. You know, this is, it's already been paid forward for me. So I'm going to make the landing. And so as I pulled the power back to about half power, I dropped between two waves and the airplane just came to an abrupt stop. I wound up hitting my, my head. It slammed me forward in the seat belts enough, the shoulder harness to, to actually bruise me. I hit my head on, on the dash and actually cut my head. And I thought I was upside down for a second. And then the, the, all of a sudden the, the airplane came out of the water. Why don't you tell them what you saw with that landing buckwheat? It was the most remarkable thing I've ever seen on a river, bar none. I saw the, I saw you fly overhead, come across the canyon, and loop around downstream. And I was on the radio that I had, but not able to make contact with whoever the pilot was. And um, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, so this must be that cache of gear they're going to bring me so that I can make do for another night or two or however long it's going to take for a helicopter to get in here and get me. And I see the plane drop into the canyon. And at that point, in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's, that's got to be Jerry. So the plane's coming down in and, you know, he was the one, he and Jimmy were the ones who had dropped me the cache of gear the night before. I'm like, okay, it's Jerry. He's coming in with another cache of gear. And, but I'm like, man, I, you know, he must be just kind of figuring out where he wants to drop this bag because he's right over the river. And uh, if he drops the bag now, it's going in the river. So he must be just trying to figure out where to drop the bag and how to approach this and, so I see him dropping into the canyon and over the river and I'm uh, standing out there again, trying to make myself, you know, as apparent as possible. And uh, the plane just drops onto the river and it was absolutely the last thing that I expected to see. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, like Jerry said, you know, when he actually set the plane into the river, he came to a very abrupt stop um, or not quite a stop. I don't know. It looked to me like the plane was going to do an ender like a kayak. 
would do an ender on a wave or a feature, right? Is that, that's nose first? Where, in the water? So nose first. Yeah. So he's facing upstream in the river and you know, the river's still very high moving very fast and we're on kind of a bend in the river, but a little bit of an open type, uh, section of the, of the river there. And, um, anyway, the, the waves are rolling, I don't know, around this corner. It's rolling waves, very fast moving current. And the plane comes to a virtual stop and the floats start to dive into the oncoming waves. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my God, he's going to enter his plane in the middle of the river. And then what? I don't know. Right. And, um, so I'm watching and somehow I, I, I hear the throttle of the plane, like sounded like full throttle to me. And, uh, somehow this plane just like starts hopping and surfaces, you know, and he's like on step and hopping on the wave and like ferrying over. I'm on river left and he's like ferrying over to me and I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And the next part of this plan, I guess, uh, we're getting out of here together, huh? (laughs) So, okay. And, uh, he ferries over to shore and throws open the door and, uh, he's like, get in, get in the plane, get in the fucking plane now. Okay. I like, jump in the plane and and it's like open cargo area in the back because he was flying in the rafting hunting trips and all and so there was like a passenger seat up front but just open cargo area in the back so i just jump in the plane and close the door and he throttles up and wham wham we hit rocks and we're like grounded out on the shore on the shore yeah facing upstream yeah and, uh, so I'm I said, Jerry, do I need to get out and push the plane off? He's like, yeah, I think so. We're stuck pretty good. And so I open the door and I start to get out of the plane and, uh, he says, yeah, we're stuck pretty good here. You might as well go back and get all your stuff. Cause yeah, you got the rain fly. You got to get the rain fly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wasn't in my dry suit at this point. I'm just sort of hanging out there. All my gears over there, including Jay's, Jay Hudson's radio. Um, and so for me, this was like uh, the hardest part of uh, this part of the whole story. Because now I'm out of the plane again. And in my mind, I'm thinking being in an airplane right here is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're between rapids. In a between river. rapids in the canyon on the river it's Big moving waves. fast there's waves <laughs> yeah it seems like just an impossible scenario really and uh so i have to run down the shoreline a little ways to go collect all my things and then run back to the airplane for me it was like the hardest part because i'm thinking to myself okay Jerry has made a huge, huge commitment here to get me out of this place. Right. But I'm not sure I want to get in that airplane. Right. Like this is, it's a 50, 50. 
And once I gathered up my gear and I was running back to the airplane and I'm really surveying the scene there and looking at things, I'm like, how do you do this? How do you, you know, it's all going through my mind real fast. I'm like, he's got to, he's got to somehow we're going to get him off the rocks and then he's got to peel out and somehow turn and face downstream. He can't take off facing upstream. So he's got to turn the plane around and face downstream to take off. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure that the river's even wide enough to turn the plane around. I don't, I'm not a pilot. I don't know how that works, but it looks real difficult. So what you get your gear, you get, I get my gear. I run back to the plane, throw my gear in the plane, run up to the float that's grounded out on the rocks and like start lifting the float. Jerry's doing what he can to maneuver and get off the rocks there. And he finally, we finally get him off the rocks and now he's kind of out and current a little bit. And for me to get back in the plane, I have to like get in the river and then climb onto the float and then climb into the plane. And Jerry, what were your thoughts? Well, the longer I sat there, the worse it looked. And, you know, I actually had to make a decision that should I just abandon the airplane, take the survival gear we've got out and uh, lose the airplane. Uh, But I also knew it was multiple days before a helicopter was going to get in there. And I really didn't know your condition uh, physically. Mm -hmm. And I just assessed the situation and thought, you know, I I can make this work. There's just enough room to get turned around and get headed downstream. But the trick is going to be when we make the turn out of the eddy, if the current catches that upstream float, just like in a kayak, uh, and that wing comes down as soon as my upstream wing touches the water, it's going to turn immediately upside down, just like catching an edge in a kayak. Absolutely. Uh, and so I yelled back to, to Buckwheat. I said, when we make this turn, you have to high side, which I never in my life thought I'd be telling somebody to high side in an airplane. There was no question. I was moving to the left. I was moving my little bit of gear to the left. <laughs> <laughs> you get the ra- the weight of the radio with you. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Keep going, Jerry. So it took full power uh, to even move upstream. Uh, and finally, I had the point where I had to make the, the uh, turn. And I, I crammed in full left rudder, had, had my water rudders down on the, on the floats. And the plane just very slowly started coming around. And then we got to where we're perfectly sideways in the current crossing that eddy line and that upstream wing which is about probably eight feet above the water normally starts coming down and down and down i don't think it was an exaggeration to say it was six inches eight inches above the water from hitting the water and i knew the second that wing caught the water we were done and finally the airplane came the rest of the way around and the wing started going up yeah, but at this point, I'm I'm full power. Normally, you want your water rudders up for takeoff, but I had to maneuver too much, so water rudders are still down, and we're heading downstream. I think any other airplane but a helio courier couldn't have pulled this off. We got airborne relatively quickly, which we needed to do, but then the airplane wouldn't climb. What I hadn't counted on is, I think when I hit those first couple of big waves and the plane came to such an abrupt stop it loosened probably almost every rivet in those floats 
and the floats had, had taken on a tremendous amount of water, probably at, at least a thousand pounds of water, maybe more, and the airplane wouldn't climb. Um, and what are you saying at this point, Buckwheat? From, yeah, so from your your point of view, right? I'm in the back of the plane and I'm high siding to the left side of the plane. Rivers coming at us from the right side, and I'm looking out the window out the side window as he's making this maneuver to peel out and get the plane turned around and face downstream. And like Jerry's saying, I just see that wing dipping down and dipping down and dipping down. I'm, I'm looking and I'm looking and, um, somehow then we've made it and, and we've made it and we're facing down river now. And I'm thinking, so, I'm not a pilot. I don't know how fast we need to be going. I don't know this airplane, but I know that we have to go as fast as possible down river and get airborne and somehow climb out of this Canyon. And I was looking over his shoulder from the back. I'm looking downstream. Like, I don't know how far we have to make that happen. And, um, I could feel us take off you know, lift off from the water. And then like Jerry said, it was this just very strenuous for the plane sort of climb to get out of the Canyon. And I just remember seeing the Canyon wall out the front window and looking over his shoulder. And then miraculously somehow we made it out. We, we're above the canyon rim, but only barely. As we're heading down canyon, I know that the next big rapid is called Screaming Left Hand Turn, and I've been there on the water uh, kayak through there, and it's a sharp left hand turn, as mm-hmm. everybody here will remember. But I couldn't outclimb it. It, it. I couldn't get enough of a safe altitude to to actually be able to to outclimb it. So I knew what I had to do. And as we, we got there, I had to just literally turn that airplane on its edge and uh, it was shuddering and shaking and on the verge of a stall. And somehow we, we managed to make that turn. Although I did, uh, I think it was the right wing, uh, the right wing tip drug in, in some of the alders there or, or maybe spruce tree. I wasn't paying enough attention to just was trying to make it happen. And uh, we we made the turn, and then it very very slowly started uh, coming out. And I think after we we leveled back off from that turn, I had you look out, and I think you confirmed that we had water uh, still streaming out of the bottom of the floats, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and just very very slowly, it uh, it continued to to drain water and climb. And of course, terrain's dropping away because you're going down river. It was probably three minutes i'd say from the time that we started the takeoff run uh, until i actually knew that we we weren't going to crash in the canyon we were going to make it out yeah and then uh as i got close enough to tell keaton to get radio contact i radioed in uh an emergency call to have my mechanics meet us at the uh, float plane lake because i knew my floats were ruptured and that if i stopped it was going to sink and so i had to had to basically beach the airplane and they were going to have to tie it. So, it, so it didn't um, sink 
uh, and just lose the airplane in the freshwater lake at home. Yeah. And I do remember and, you uh, pointing out the green streak of what, whatever sort of, uh, vegetation we hit on the way out of the Canyon on the right wing. It was the right wing that like you could see. Yeah. Evi- like evidence. Of, right. Yeah. <laughs> precisely. And it wasn't until we kind of cleared the Canyon rim that I was like, Jerry, can I come up and, you know, take a seat up front? Uh, cause I was still in the back cargo area and he turned around and he said, yeah, come on up. And it was the first time I noticed that he had a gash in his forehead and he's like bleeding. And so I come up into the front seat and I was like, Jerry, what happened, man? You know, you took a pretty good hit to the head there. You're bleeding. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, are my eyes dilated evenly? Oh, wow. <laughs> I said, yeah, I think so. and he goes do you know how to fly i'm like no no i'm not a pilot he's like okay well keep your eye on me then oh my gosh yeah okay so who flies the plane jerry did you make it all the way to the strip yeah i did to the lake to the lake you did yeah Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) yeah wow and one of the things that was so cool is landing on the lake not only were my mechanics there everybody else from the crew uh, they were all there waiting, and that was probably one of the the nicest greetings that I've ever seen anybody get. Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, it was a it was a warm welcome home. I remember walking down the trail to the lake. We we had seen the the plane come in. We went over to the lake and walking down the trail, and I didn't know if if he had buckwheat or not really. And I see Jerry walking up the trail and he just has this look like the weight of the world has gone off of him. And when I get to him, I see his head's cut and he's like been bleeding. And I'm like, Jerry, what's up? And he's like, I got him. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So I run down there and then there's the plane with a couple of guys in the water trying to tie it off and definitely looking like it's going down. And that was it. Saw Buckwheat, saw Mikey and all, and, and in just a matter of moments, it was like we were all a couple days late for what we had to do, and we're all like, well, I guess I'll see you next year. <laughs> we all kick off. Boating season's over. Yeah. Buckwheat Shut it down. over now, yeah. <laughs> the idea of getting in a plane that lands between two Class 5 Rapids on a haystack does not seem, it doesn't seem exciting to me, enticing, maybe the best decision, and then I'm curious your thoughts as you as you see this unfold, the plane almost endowing into the river in front of you, but coming over to the eddy and Jerry opening the door and saying, get the fuck in. What's the background chatter in your head about what you're oh, about yeah. to do? I, I guess in, in the in the back of my mind somewhere, something was telling me, do not get in that plane. This may not end well. And yet that thought was so suppressed by everything that was going on. And I, I just in my mind somehow convinced myself that if Jerry believed he could do this, then we were going to do it. He made the commitment to land and try to get me out of there with his plane And if he was committed to it, then I was committed to it. And I was just going to get in the plane and do whatever I could in that situation to 
help him get his airplane back out of that canyon, I guess. How much of that decision to get in is like, like you understand he's, he believes in it. He's committed to it. How much of it is also like just respect for the effort and respect for this? That's this exactly what it was. Respecting his commitment and his effort to come in and get me. And, and I was also reflecting on the fact because I, I knew about his experience just a few weeks prior being rescued out of the river. And I was reflecting on that in my mind that Jerry was here to help me because Jerry felt like someone had saved his life in this same place only a few weeks prior. And I had full respect for that. And I had to honor his decision to make the commitment to come in and get me and get in that freaking plane. I'll tell you, it was pretty interesting that the effect of the trip like this has on you. It changed my outlook for who I wanted to boat with and what I wanted to boat and how much I, I didn't ever want to have another adventure like this again. <laughs> I can't help but remember also a Grand Canyon trip a couple years after our Devil's Canyon trip where all three of us, Bill and Buckwheat and myself, were members of this Grand Canyon trip. And there were people uh, on that trip that wanted to hear the story. And they, uh, during the fire, you know, around the fire one evening, we were able to, uh, you know, nice, beautiful, calm desert evening. And there were tiki torches around and we had a fire going and we commenced to tell this story. And it was still pretty fresh because this was only a couple of years, maybe after uh, the actual adventure. I learned a lot about Bill's perspective and Buckwheat's perspective about that adventure on Devil's Canyon. But we were missing Jerry at that point. So today, uh, getting Jerry involved helped to uh, yeah, patch in a few more uh, missing pieces, you know, that we uh, um, hadn't really heard before. So this this is a really, I'm, I'm honored to be part of this conversation today. And it's bringing back a lot of great memories, uh, scary memories, and memories of, of incredible joy as well. Last question. Are you, are you, are you glad it happened? Would you do it the same? Would you change, you know, like, would you go back and make a detour before that day and say, you know, guys don't go on the, on the big Sioux. Maybe glad it's not the right word, but what, what are your thoughts on that idea? Yeah. I, I can't say that I'm glad it all happened the way it did. Definitely not my proudest kayaking moment, but just the, I mean, in one way, it ended up being what you go into the wilderness of Alaska for, which is the unexpected, right? You're going in there to do your best and to challenge yourself, to deal with the elements, go to a place you've never seen before, a river you've never paddled before, see how it all shakes out. And you go in there with a couple of your best friends and you know that if something happens, if things go wrong, whatever, they have your back. And um, that's important in life. For me personally, I, uh, it's an experience that I'm glad I had, but I certainly wouldn't want to repeat it. Or I, I wouldn't want to go back into that environment with that kind of risk again. But again, it, it 
the bonds that I've got with these guys and buckwheat, especially, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. Yeah, I agree with that. It'd be easy to say, maybe we shouldn't have done it. But at the same time, if we hadn't have done it, we'd be sitting around going, God, we should have done that. We should have done that. Yep. We just learned a lot about ourselves doing it more than just mm-hmm. what kind of a pilot or a boater we are. I want to thank Jerry too for saving my friend. Thank you, Jerry. Well, what you did was miraculous, Jerry. As I said earlier, it's the, the most, uh, just in, incredible visual that is as clear today as it was when it happened. And that memory will never be erased from, from my mind. And, um, yeah, I have an immense amount of respect for you both as a person for making the commitment that you did to come and get me out of there. And I have an immense amount of respect for your abilities as a pilot. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. While you're all here, I just want to give out a collective thank you again for uh, all your efforts. A Helio Courier size thank you goes out to Buckwheat, Jerry, Mikey, Bill, and Connie for telling this story. Today's advertising sponsor is the Denver and Front Range of Colorado Nissan dealerships. Find them on the web at www.nissanusa.com. And you can also find a dealer locator link in today's episode notes. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. All music in today's episode is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. The plane just drops onto the river. Get in the fucking plane, man. I never in my life thought I'd be telling somebody to high side in an airplane. The Helio Courier. Yeah. It was shuddering and shaking and on the verge of a stall. I'll try to calm down a little. <laughs>